and the, the Spirit, we have to hit the cold topic or the forgotten work, as I put it here. And uh, in fact, there's even a, uh, there's a third topic, very briefly, I have to discuss before we hit this uh, forgotten work. I just didn't want to make it a four-page outline, uh, so I didn't tack this one on. But very briefly, as we think about the Word of God, what makes the Word of God powerful? What makes the Word of God a powerful Word? What makes God's Word have effect? You ever thought about that question before? I think the answer is in a place like Hebrews 4, verse 12. For the Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. It discerns the thoughts and intentions of the heart. The Word of God is a living Word. The Word of God is an active Word. How can the Word of God be a living Word? There must be some, some life principle in it. That, that principle, that life, we describe as coming from, right? The Word is a living Word, and therefore, it gets its life from the Spirit of life. The Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit. The Word of God, we see this in creation. God creates. How does God create the world? He speaks. The Word does something. You think about Christ at the tomb of Lazarus. How does Christ call Lazarus to life? Well, He calls him. He says. He proclaims the Word. And it's not some kind of magic trick. It's not some Star Wars trick. It's the proclamation of the Word. To put it very basic, very easy. You know this. You've been to church before. You've heard a sermon or two before. Maybe you've given a sermon or two before. What is the difference between you hearing the sermon and responding in faith and your neighbor, your friend, your loved one not responding in faith? You're both sitting in the same pew. You're both there. You hear the same word. What is the difference between you responding and the person you've been praying for for decades not responding? What's the the open question? What is the difference? The Spirit, yes, ma'am. See, the Word, apart from the Spirit of God, is, is well, it's dull. It, it, it's not accomplishing the goal of salvation. It accomplishes instead a goal of judgment. The Bible never says the Holy Spirit always makes the Word effective for salvation. You think about John 6, right? Christ speaks His Word. I am the bread of life. And you think everybody would come to Him. They don't come to Him. Everybody just turned away. Most of them, not everybody, most of them turn away. You, you think of uh, 1 Corinthians 2. The, Paul says, we speak an aroma of death and it's leading to death. The, the first point, therefore, and this is the one I didn't include for reason of space and time, uh, the, the first principle we have to get about the Word of God and the Holy Spirit of God is that the two are intimately connected. The two are intimately connected. And to make one one other point, there's a difference here between the external call and the internal call. This is what I've been talking about. The the Word is preached. In In an hour or so, the Word will be preached to you. That's the external call. It's universal. Everybody's going to hear it. Who's here? Everybody's going to hear it. It's given to all. Many are called, Christ says, Matthew 22, 14, many are called, but few are chosen. 
Not all receive this internal call of the Holy Spirit. And therefore, when it comes to the calling of people, the Word and the Spirit work together. This is a uniquely uh, Calvinist position. Not everybody makes this distinction between the external and the internal calling. Externally, we are called to preach the gospel to all people. This often comes up in questions of, of, of evangelism. You know, if you believe in a God who is sovereign, why would you even give the gospel to everybody? Well, because we believe the word of God is given to all, and I can't see in your heart. You can't see in my heart. I can't see who's going to have the internal call resonate. And so I have to, you have to, that there's an urgency that we are to give the word as intensely as any are many. We are to give the word of God because we don't know to whom, when, how the spirit will work. Now, that's, uh, that's a little taste on the question of, of calling. Uh, again, Matthew twenty two fourteen puts it very simply. Many called, few, few chosen. Um, I could go on. We could discuss, you know, when that, that, not, that thorny question, right? God says, have I any pleasure in the death of the wicked? I don't have time to discuss Ezekiel 18, 23. Uh, but um, I can answer that. You know, hopefully you've settled that in your mind. If you haven't, come talk to me afterwards. And uh, we could get into that. But uh, the very first principle we see here is that the Word and the Spirit work together. And that's kind of leading into what, what I've called the forgotten work of the Holy Spirit, or the cold work, you might say, the cold topic of the Holy Spirit, which is the internal testimony. You have an internal call, and then you have an internal witness or an internal testimony that when you read the Bible, the Spirit helps you to see that it bears the marks of God. When you read the Bible, you don't just read it as a collection of historical facts. I was listening to Bart Ehrman for about two seconds, way too long for Bart Ehrman. I was listening to him the other day um, for some reason. And um, he was talking about how the Gospels are the only historical record we have of Jesus, and they're so late you can't even trust them. It's his standard argument. I'm not, no, I've heard it many times. Not a great argument, but don't have time to get into that right now. But the point is, he does not have the internal testimony of the Holy Spirit. He does not have the Spirit's work to recognize in the Gospels the very hand of God. And so all that we've been discussing in this class about evidences for the Scriptures, about the reliability of the Word, about the existence of God speaking, about the coherence of Christianity, all that we've been talking about, the beauty of the style, the capstone of the argument, and I put this on your handout, it's from our Confession of Faith 1.5, our full persuasion and assurance of the infallible truth and divine authority of Scripture is from the inward work of the Holy Spirit, bearing witness by and with the Word in our hearts. That is, where should your persuasion come from that the Bible is the Word of God? Should you go listen to a lecture on the evidences for the Gospel? Did you go, I saw the other day that there's been an archaeological dig and they've uncovered references to King David doing such and such a thing that, that connects with the Bible. That's great. That's good. We should, we, should, we should search and dig and look up things. Absolutely. But that's not where your full persuasion should come from. That's not where your full assurance should, should come from. Rather, we see here that, as I put here in your outline, there is a spirit 
faith-driven certainty that belongs to every Christian. What is a spirit-driven certainty? First, it does not replace the evidence of archaeology, the evidence of the beauty. Literally speaking, the book of Samuel, First and Second Samuel, is a beautiful masterpiece. It's up there with Shakespeare. And you can see that, recognize that. That's good. You can read Proverbs and say, that's some good common sense about how to run your life. But this surpasses that. Doesn't replace it. Doesn't replace it. Doesn't mean you don't you can't use that. It, it surpasses that. Second, this internal testimony of the Holy Spirit is not independent. It's by and with the Word of God. Third, I quote here from the lesser-known Hodge, Casper Hodge. I don't know if you ever thought about naming your kid Casper. No, that's probably good. Uh, <laughs> I haven't either, until now. We'll see. Uh, the, the witness of the Spirit to the Bible is not objective in the sense of a mystical truth to your mind, nor is it subjective from Christian experience. See, a lot of folks say, this is what the, the, Roman, the, the Roman Catholics will say, look, I've had, I've, had, I've had a Roman Catholic professor tell me this before. You Protestants, you believe that the internal, internal testimony of the Holy Spirit, and you know what that is? That's making y'all a bunch of popes. This is the standard Roman Catholic argument. Y'all attack us for having a pope, but your problem is you have 20,000 popes. Everybody's a pope when you're Protestant, because it's just what you think about. It's what you say. Your interpretation goes. You need a solid interpretation. That's what you get with the pope. Now, listen to Casper Hodge. The witness of the Spirit. We're not talking about some mystical truth given to me. We're not talking about my warm, fuzzy feeling in the heart. Listen to what he says. It is simply the saving work on this, of the Spirit on the heart, removing the spiritual blindness produced by sin so that the marks of God's hand in the Bible can be clearly seen and appreciated. That's the, the answer to Rome and that, with that argument is we're not claiming to have a separate, special revelation apart from the Word. The internal testimony of the Holy Spirit is not saying that we need to call it the cardinals. It's not saying we need to worship Mary. It's not adding to Scripture. It's not saying we need purgatory. What it's saying is simply, you recognize the hand of the Master in the Word. Casper Hodge uses this illustration. I think I mentioned it there. I don't, but I'll <laughs> have it in my notes. So I'll tell you anyway. He says, look, you look at a Rembrandt. You look at a Kandinsky. You look at some great piece of art. And you recognize it's a masterpiece. The only way you can recognize it's a masterpiece is if Rembrandt had painted some marks of his genius in there. What makes the difference between a Rembrandt and something that I drew? You've seen my drawing. It's not a masterwork. Very far. What makes the difference? I don't have any marks of genius in my artwork. Rembrandt does. By analogy, by analogy, the Spirit, the internal testament of the Spirit, in regeneration, breaks the dominion of darkness over your soul and over your mind and gives you light, not new truth. We're not popes. We're not getting new truth. The same truth, the one truth. But he gives you spiritual light to recognize the mark of God in his word. 
I give you there a quote from Acts 26, 18, Paul before Agrippa. You can look at that for more details. Any questions on that? Again, that's kind of the, the cold work, the forgotten work of the Holy Spirit. Um, again, as I've mentioned before, when we speak about evidences for the Bible being the Word of God, this is not primarily an evangelistic thing. I don't want you to go to your neighbor and say, you should believe God's Word because the Holy Spirit told me. I mean, you can say that. I mean, don't, don't, don't expect them to respond, you know, and, and say, oh, yes, okay. And they might. But this is not primarily a, uh, an evangelistic or an apologetic point. This is a you praising God for having opened your eyes from darkness to light. It's a doxological. It's a worship point before it's an argumentative point. Questions on that? I'm really hoping not too many because we have a fair bit to get through. But if you have one or two, or comments, we have time. I can make time. Questions on that? The internal testament of the Holy Spirit. Often uh, misinterpreted, often forgotten. Great. We'll move on to the, the tricky question. The question, uh, the hot topic. The question of the extraordinary gifts of the Holy Spirit. Again, I have an outline. If you'll need a copy, let me know. Uh, and again, let me just remind you, uh, this is not, uh, we're not going to cover all of this, you know, in detail today. Um, so if you have questions, follow up. But before we begin this, this discussion, there's a way to approach this topic, the topic, the question of the extraordinary gift of spirit. Are they active or have they continued to this day? There's a, there's a way to approach it that's a bad way that says, look, I've seen Jimmy Swaggart on TV. I've seen the televangelists. I've seen these things, and they're gross. That is a yucky, disgusting Christianity. I don't want any part of that. There's a way to approach the topic that says, ew. And then you look at the Bible and you try to find a way that justifies your ew. Not, not the way we're going to go about it. Not the way we need to go about it. We need to be open to what the Word of God says. We want to discuss that. So as we begin here, um, I'm going to give you, this is on your outline as well, um, four basic arguments for the extraordinary gifts, by which we mean generally prophecy, tongues, and miracles, four arguments that they continue. I think these are the four kind of uh, best, if you will, arguments that the extraordinary gifts continue. This view is sometimes called continuationism. It argues that the gifts continue. Let me give you the four arguments that are here. First, the, the argument is uh, the brute fact of Christian experience. Can 400 million Christians around the world be wrong? Last count that I looked up. Can Christians in Latin America and Africa and Asia and, and uh, our, our Pentecostal and charismatic brothers, can they be this bad, this, this off base? Now, I, I suppose that in one sense, that, that's not a super satisfactory answer because you could ask the same about us. Can so many Christians who don't believe be wrong? But in any event, you have all these reports of miracles and of healings and of prophecies coming true and of speaking in tongues, whatever tongues are. Can that be so wrong? Second argument. The uh, New Testament is silent. The New Testament never says that we should expect these gifts to be withdrawn. So they must continue. Show me a verse. 
Show me a verse, and I'll believe. Third, the New Testament speaks of one new covenant age. One new covenant age. One, one new era, not two. The New Testament seems to speak of one new covenant, not some era of the apostles and then the rest of church history. It doesn't seem to be an apostolic and post-apostolic era. Uh, fourth, just to give you one exegetical argument, 1 Corinthians 13.10 says, imperfect slash perfect. When the perfect comes, these gifts prophecy will cease. When the perfect comes, isn't the perfect? I mean, what can be more perfect than Jesus Christ coming in glory? So clearly, 1 Corinthians 13.10 is speaking about the imperfect between his first, second comings, and then the perfect has to be his return in glory. So shouldn't we expect prophecy to continue and by implication, tongues and miracles to continue? Those are the four arguments uh, that I find to be uh, most helpful in, in kind of examining um, the argument of continuation. Now I have answers there on the handout. Uh, we'll get to those in, in due time. Any questions on those arguments, and then we'll get to our buddy Wayne Grudem. And I'll tell you why I picked out Wayne Grudem. Rick's laughing if he knows why. <clears throat> All right, Wayne Grudem. Yes, sir. Bring out one thing, though. You know, you, you clump it. What, what are you saying are the extraordinary gifts? Well, for sake of time and argument, prophecy, tongues, and miracles, or there, I mean, there may be others. Advocate. I agree with two out of three because tongues is considered the least of gifts. So how could you clump that with the other two? So yeah, I'm simply saying. Yeah, I'm giving the argument from a charismatic perspective that would often clump those, recognizing that. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. I agree with what you're saying, but I'm, I'm just going from a different. Oh no, I, I, there'll be a there'll be there's a, there's a whole thing on tongues that uh, some of y'all may have already have gotten to um, if you read through things <clears throat> ahead. Don't read ahead. Um, so, Wayne Grudem. You got to get her here early, Greg. No, I'm sorry. I can. Uh, we can make copies for you. I, I'll be happy to make a, a billion copies and uh, hand them out. Um, my apologies. I would give you mine, but I need it. Um, maybe somebody can share. Uh, so, Wayne Grudem. Why, why Wayne Grudem? You know, when I went to Fuller Seminary, um, my my. Uh, my Baptist non-denominational friends said, uh, we love Wayne Grudem. We love Wayne Grudem because he's a nice, moderate guy. He does two things. Wayne Grudem is a Calvinist who says, I uphold the Bible and its sufficiency. The Bible is sufficient. The Bible has full authority. I believe in the, in the Bible's sufficiency as much as you do. Anybody in this room, I believe in it. But he also claims that the gifts of tongues and prophecy and miracles continue. Right? He, he, he's a Calvinist charismatic, of which there are many these days. Sam Storms, another guy, I don't know the names. I can name plenty of names, but uh, Mark Driscoll back in the day would be one as well. 
Um, let me give you some quotes from him. These, again, are, are your outline. He argues that miracles, let's take miracles, uh, miracles have not ceased. He says Christians should pursue miracles for three purposes. First, to confirm the gospel's truth. We would agree, I think, that that's one of the purposes of miracles in Scripture. Second, to bring help to those in need. I guess four, four arguments. Third, to remove hindrances to people's ministries. And fourth, to bring glory to God. Now, insofar as uh, what miracles are for in the Bible, I think we all could agree with that. Those are four good reasons why miracles are given in Scripture. Great. <clears throat> Second, when it comes to tongues. By the way, this is on the back, page two of your, your, your hand down. He defines tongues as prayer or praise spoken in syllables not understood by the speaker. Ordinarily involving speech in a language that no one, no one understands. And therefore, he, he makes a distinction here between tongues and prophecy. Tongues are directed towards God. So his argument is, tongues, these, these languages nobody knows, they are prayer to God. Uh, he has a very unique view of prophecy. And this is, I've had people tell me this, you know, given the view before. Um, but I, don't, I just want you to know that we are choosing him because he has a, a million copies sold of his systematic, some, some crazy number. He's the most popular uh, guy in the Southern Baptist Church, uh, I think even on, uh, uh, if, if you're more of a Calvinist person, if you're a non-denominational person, likely, and you're semi, you're Calvinist, when it comes to salvation, soteriology, you're going you're gonna to love Wayne Grudem. His view on prophecy is this. He says, Unlo- tongues are not revelation. Tongues are not new revelation. They're just prayer to God in a special language. But prophecy, he will equate with revelation. He will equate prophecy with revelation. He says this, prophecy is telling something that God has spontaneously brought to mind. And he says, look, New Testament prophets are kind of a second-class prophet. Your OT prophets are the real guys. Your OT prophets are the big ones. But the New Testament prophets, well, look at Agabus. I mean, Agabus, he, he argues, makes a couple of mistakes. And so prophecy in the New Testament clearly is fallible. It's revelation from God, but you can kind of, you can kind of mess it up. You can kind of mess it up. Um, as he says here, prophecies in the church today should be considered merely human words, not God's words, not equal to God's words in authority. He, he quotes 1 Corinthians 14, 30-31. Paul calls a, this prophecy a revelation. And so what does he mean by prophecy? This is the key. This is uh, the very end of uh, the Grudem section on your handout. Paul is referring to something that God may suddenly bring to mind or that God may impress on someone. So here's the upshot of it. Grudem's argument is that prophecy is a revelation, but fallible, and it's basically when you feel or believe that God might be speaking to you. It's a prophecy. When God impresses something on your mind, you have a sense, as he says, the person has a sense that it is from God. That's kind of Grudem's unique. He has like a two-tier view. OT prophets, not fallible. Revelation, kind of what you and I might think of as prophecy. 
New Testament prophets, secondary, but continuing. And he says, look, we see that today, don't you? I mean, don't you, don't you have you had those, those times last week even maybe where, where you feel like God was, was telling you to do something, where a verse came to your mind and it was apt, it was fit, it was appropriate, it was right. Prophecy, prophecy, revelation. The Spirit's working. Any questions on that before we get to a response to it? Saturday morning at Gideon. Somebody heard a voice tell them to go to the bathroom and bless the house of God. They were saved. Somebody else was going to Hobby Lobby and get it. So turn around and go home. Play home. Hobby Lobby. Yeah, and what do we what, what do we right? What do we do with that? I mean, I think I think part of, part of the reality. And this is this is the, the last point I have in the outline. I'll just tell you now because I think it's a very good point. If you don't believe in the continuing gifts of the Holy Spirit, I, I don't in this regard. The extraordinary gifts, um, ordinarily, if you don't believe that that is new revelation, which I don't, what do you do with that? What do you do when you have something come to your mind, an impression, let's say, that you should go to the bathroom? And it's not your bladder, right? That's where I thought you were going with it. Um, what do you do with that? It's a really important question because we have that happen to us. Go ahead, Greg. You said that he would claim to be reformed? He is Calvinist. I mean, uh, yeah, he, he would hold to the doctrines of grace and God's sovereignty and all the rest. What, what's, your, what's your disagreement? definitely say that he's drifting because he cannot reinterpret prophecy from what is revealed in scripture and no way that that's a definition that Agabus Agabus gave a prophecy it wasn't totally right Agabus had maybe an impression from you know yeah so you remember he he, he says look uh, Paul you know, he, he comes and he speaks to Paul and he says, look, uh, you'll be tied up just like this belt is tied up on you. And, you know, Grudem would argue he's not, he's not quite right in the details. Now, I think, I think actually if you, if you read through it, looks like we don't have time to go through it. We can go through it. You and I can go through it maybe a different time. But um, I would argue it's not a fallible, it's not a, uh, Agabus does not give a fallible prophecy. Happening today in America in great abundance. This definition of words. There's a lot of being worse than a Jesus. It doesn't exist. <laughs> and that would be called prophecy. prophecy. No doubt the Holy Spirit can guide your actions in life and bring to your mind thoughts. I mean, that's why. Well, and that's, that's the point. I mean, to cut to the chase, Jim, it, my, my big bugbear is this word right here Revelation, right? You know, Grudem will claim that this is new revelation. And that's where, and I'll just go to the very end. Fine, I'll do it. Um, <clears throat> yeah, this, is the, this is page three, uh, third point up from the bottom. Uh, one of my issues with Grudem is that he confuses revelation and illumination. Um, and I'm quoting Sinclair Ferguson here. He says, Grudem's view of prophecy is better suited to illumination, fallible insight, and contemporary application of biblical truth. Now, don't tell this. To, if you have folks who, who, uh, who believe in the continuation of the gifts, don't say what I'm about to say. 
don't tell them this. They won't like it. Don't tell your charismatic friends this. But I would say that when, he, when it comes down to it, the argument for the continuing extraordinary gifts is very similar to the Roman Catholic Church's argument for a separate source of tradition. It's very similar, because in both cases, it looks very different in some ways. One is a very top-down, ordered structure. One seems very free-form and open to all sorts of things. But the upshot is actually, Wayne Grudem is actually very similar to a Roman Catholic in having a secondary source of revelation apart from Scripture. God tells me to go to Hobby Lobby. A man says, God told me to leave my wife and take this other woman. Contrary to scripture, so it's obviously yeah. a different source. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Now, however, we have to actually argue what, what's happening. What's happening in the investment? What's happening with these gifts? What are they there for? And again, I'll time to get their thing, and whew, we're getting close, but let me hit a few things here. This is a kind of a response. Um, first, we have these, I'll, I'll hit these later. Uh, instead, let's, let's hit the response first in broad strokes. We have to interpret Pentecost. We have to interpret Acts 2. What is happening in the book of Acts? And the fundamental question we have to ask, is the book of Acts normal Christian experience? Is Luke describing, is God giving us a pattern that we should expect all Christians to go through, at least the good, the good Christians to go through, or is it an event in the history of salvation? This is the fundamental question. Um, not that there can't be applications, but is Luke describing normal, expected Christian experience? And the answer, of course, you can tell what I'm setting up for, no. But argue very strongly that Acts chapter 2, that Peter's sermon at Pentecost is not meant to be part of our ordinary Christian life. Acts 2 instead is the pouring out, it's kind of uh, the next part in the life of Jesus after he ascends. I, I, he says, in, doesn't he, in the upper room, I will send my spirit, my helper. I will give him to you. And, and here we have in Acts 2 at Pentecost, the pouring out of the spirit when he leaves. I would put it in the category of the Exodus. I would put it in the category even of the crucifixion and the resurrection. Pentecost is not something you're meant to try to repeat or replicate in your life any more than you need to go and do a kind of, uh, I've seen it done, I've been to a, a, a Catholic retreat one time where they had a guy on a cross. He was carrying the cross and he, he got the cross and he nailed it in and he put himself up on there. Should we do that? Should we, should we literally repeat the crucifixion? No, is the answer. No. That's not, that's not the point. It's not a model for the contemporary church. For personal experience in terms of a kind of uh, additional blessing. Rather, it's a model in the history. It's a, it's a picture of God's work in history. God moving his people into a new era where we now live in the last days. We now live uh, with the spirit having been poured out. And to make the point about this, we got to turn to one of the key texts in the whole, the whole discussion, which is Ephesians 2.20. Ephesians 2.20. You can turn there. You can listen. 
I'll begin in, in verse 19, just so you have the whole background. Paul here is speaking about uh, the, the Gentiles. He's speaking to the Gentiles. He says, So then you are no longer strangers, foreigners, and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Now here's the key verb, verse 20, built. For the nerds, that is an aorist participle. Having been built, you might say. Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Again, an aorist uh, passive participle are being built together in Christ. The point is, you have an image of a foundation. Now, I'm not a construction guy, but you can tell me this very simple question. You can answer it. Can you build two foundations on a house? Is that something you can do? I don't think so. I don't think you can. There's one foundation. You lay a foundation, you build a house on it. That's the image here. And more to the point, notice the order in verse 20. Built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. The image is you have Christ as a cornerstone. You have foundation. The foundation is two groups, apostles and prophets. Note the order. The order is significant here. Who's mentioned first? The apostles. Why is that important? Because he is referring, Paul's referring here to New Testament apostles and New Testament prophets. If he switched it, it, it's conceivable that he could refer to first Old Testament, Old Covenant prophets, and then, oh, we have in the New Covenant, the New Testament, we have apostles. But the order is a clue. It's, it's not a slam dunk argument, but it, it, it's a pretty important clue that we're not talking here about Old Testament prophets and New Testament apostles, but rather the apostles and the prophets are the one foundation, the once-for-all foundation, which implies that the gifts of tongues and prophecy have served their purpose. So what is their purpose? What is the purpose? Um, and we'll look here particularly at the, at the gift of tongues, given the time we have. What is the purpose of tongues. One, it was to, well, actually, you could almost say threefold. One would be to, as in Acts, uh, when the outpouring of the Spirit comes, there were people of different nations, tribes there that they would speak and could hear the praises and prophecies uh, that were being done. If we don't have any specifics, technically, but. Uh, yeah. You also have uh, the instance of um, um, manifestation, like you said, of, in Corinthians, it talks about the aspect that unbelievers would hear and... You've read ahead, right? And it also, which you're disagreeing with, but I think is a prayer language. It's also yeah. talked about in the same instance, and there's also other references to the idea that I wish you all could prophesy and speak in tongues like I do and the same in tongues. So there, there's, I think there's, 
I think sometimes we go, and like I said, we clump all of them and say, this is extraordinary. Well, Paul makes it very specific. Problem is not extraordinary. How so? In the, in, in, in the sense of the gifts. He's saying it's the least of the gifts. And he tries to bring that up very strongly. And I think we, on the other side, sometimes, because we're so against the, mm -hmm. the prophecy and the uh, revelation of new information, so to speak, from God, mm -hmm. that we automatically clump them all together. Mm -hmm. I don't know that you can. Mm -hmm. That's my challenge. Is well, actually, Greg, I think that's a very interesting point you raise. I mean, I, there's a lot there, of course. I can't. Yeah, a lot. Um, but I, I would say one point you raise is actually that um, there's a lot of disagreement in the charismatic camp over what tongues are. Are they private? Are they public? What does interpretation look like? Uh, just as there are over, over prophecy and, and miracles. You're a historian. read a lot about history. No. The other thing that, that, that comes out, whenever you mm -hmm. see, and, and again, I understand Satan has its counterparts, mm -hmm. but as you really honestly take a look at, in history, at times of revival, there's always tongues involved. <coughs> it may be in an ex, not, not necessarily, how can I say it, by the main, pro, mm -hmm. can I say preachers, so to speak, mm -hmm. but in, in the multitudes as things happen. I, I, and, and that's what I've, as far as what I've read, there's been, you know, this thing going on. Yeah, I, I mean, part of that depends on what you call revival. I'm not sure that I would uh, I would necessarily agree, but that's a whole again, Greg. You're you're raising about five different things, and I can't uh, get all of them in the three minutes we have left. Um, but uh, but I can at least make the argument that you were kind of hinting at here. You know, in in First Corinthians 14, just to give us some some scriptural basis here. Um, I'll just begin in uh, in 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 verse. Well, let me leave it with the background here. In, in First Corinthians 13 and 14. Paul is speaking about the role of spiritual gifts. I think this is a very critical point to note. He's speaking about gifts. He speaks about love, right? He says, if I speak in the tongues of men and angels, but have not love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. You know this. Uh, his, his point is that uh, the gifts are given. This is 1 Corinthians 12, 27 through 30. You are the body of Christ, individually members of it. And God's appointed in the church, and he goes through a list of gifts, including miracles and, and prophets and healing and, and tongues and those sort of things. His point is, these are meant to help the church. These are meant to help the corporate body of Christ. I mentioned that point because that impacts the rest of his argument. And I think, I think Greg, actually, this is one reason why I'm, I'm hesitant to say that tongues are meant to be a private prayer language. Because of Paul's, whole, Paul's point here, Paul's aim is to say the gifts are given, whatever they are, whether they continue or not, they are given to build up the church in faith, hope, and love. They're given not for me, myself, and I. We, we, think about it, even today, we are obsessed with what is my spiritual gift? I mean, ignore all this stuff. We, we are obsessed with spiritual gifts. What do I have? Do I have this or that gift? Instead of actually using them, instead of actually doing them, instead of actually serving, instead of actually uh, speaking, instead of actually being in the church for, for God's people. This is, this is it's a side comment. But getting back to this question of tongues, very briefly, Greg, you already mentioned where, where I was going because you didn't read ahead. 
And um, that's all right. That's all right. Uh, one of the points I think we, we, don't, we don't encounter here is what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 14. He quotes the law, Deuteronomy, Isaiah. By people of strange tongues and by the lips of foreigners will I speak to this people. And even then they will not listen to me, says the Lord. Verse 22, thus tongues are a sign not for believers, but for unbelievers. While prophecy is a sign not for unbelievers, but for uh, believers. Now what's he saying there? I think part of what he's, he's connecting there with the Old, Old Testament is that tongues are actually a sign of covenant judgment. Whatever tongues are. Right, I think uh, I would argue that they are uh, foreign languages. I think that's pretty indisputable in the book in Acts. Maybe more of a question in First Corinthians. But whatever they are, <clears throat> Paul claims that they are a sign for unbelievers. As Sinclair Ferguson says, the use of languages other than the common covenant tongue, Aramaic, Greek, Hebrew, is a sign of divine hostility. I think it's very important uh, that we not simply say, oh, why are the gifts given? They're given to confirm the apostolic authority. That's true. But I think what we have here is an additional reason why the gift of tongues are given. You recall at Pentecost, the accusation is made by unbelievers against the, uh, the Christians there. The accusation is, hey, it's nine in the morning, you're drunk. Which is very similar to God's Judgment that he says he'll bring on Israel in Deuteronomy and Isaiah 28. You speak like you're drunken people to me, guess what? I'm going to judge you with what sounds like drunken people to you. And so in at Pentecost, again showing it's a historical redemptive act, what we have is what sounds like drunkenness to Jews is actually judgment on Israel, judgment on physical Israel, because spiritual Israel, the new Israel, is coming because the Spirit's poured out in the last days are there. Woof, so much more to get into. Um, I am tempted to, uh, to go further next week, but we're going to start a new, uh, a new class. So I had this for you. That's why I gave it to you. Um, any last comment or question, care or concern? Um, the upshot of this all, I'll, I'll take the last comment. That's really selfish of me. I'm so sorry, but I am up here, so I can do that, I suppose. The last comment, I suppose, on a positive note, is just to um, <clears throat> to, to remember this this point about about Wayne Grudem and about what we think is God speaking to us. We ought to be more open, as if you don't, like me believe that the gifts these gifts do not continue cessationist. We ought to be more open to the idea of illumination than we are currently. We ought to be more open to the idea that. There can be impressions that God can bring a verse to mind without equating that with God-given revelation that supersedes his word. But rather, God loves. I think God loves to bring his word by his spirit to your mind at the appropriate time. As Esther was raised and reared for such a time as this, you have been raised and reared in the bosom of the church and the bosom of the word for your time, for your week, for your day, by your spirit. I suppose that's a good way to conclude uh, the topic. And um, many words you understand, I a word you don't understand. So when I think that 
to say about what you're saying, you know, where Jesus himself said, he says, look, when you get arrested, don't worry about what you speak. The Holy Spirit in that moment will give you the words to speak. Right. Trust that. Right. We don't need to claim that that's prophecy no. for that to be the Spirit working. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Great. Well, let me close this in prayer, and then we can prepare ourselves to worship God. Almighty Lord, we thank you that you uh, have not left us adrift, but that you continually bring us back to your word. We do ask that you would give us a healthy love of your spirit, that we would uh, desire you to illuminate our blinded minds, to show us in your beautiful word the marks of the artist, the masterwork that you have, and the masterwork that you have for us as you prepare good works in advance for us to walk in them. We pray you would help us to walk with your spirit in the good works this week and this day. We might worship you in spirit and in truth. We pray this in Christ's name, who is the very word made flesh. Amen. Thank you all.